Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion, addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Welcome, brothers and sisters in Christ, the remnant of truth proclaimers and defenders, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. And I can't wait to get to our guest today, back with us, Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson with Answers in Genesis. He's a researcher there, biologist, author, and the, the book Traced is just doing very, very well and we're going to continue on that topic about human DNA's big surprise. Um, but first, I want to address something. We've begin, been getting a lot of feedback about, I think it was Monday's podcast with Dr. J.B. Hickson, where he was refuting Calvinism and the uh, doctrines behind Calvinism. Well, it's interesting. That's uh, We've been getting more comments on that than on many recent podcasts. Uh, last week, as you know, we had on Mike Gendron and Justin Peters, and I believe both of them uh, lean toward the Calvinist view. Um, in fact, on this podcast, we've had a handful of people you didn't even know were Calvinists because we believe they're our brothers and we are not to break fellowship with them necessarily. Now, we know we can talk about doctrine and, and whether it supports um, Scripture and all that, but we can get into the weeds on this. So in other words... I've gotten some feedback on both sides, and the only thing we could do is have two different people on the podcast and have a debate on any issue. But then we'd have to do um, so many other, not just Calvinism, we'd have to do a predestination, and we'd have to do um, you know, the theories on the rapture, timing of the rapture, so many different. So we, this is not a debate format, this podcast. We have one or, as the other day, two guests on, which was phenomenal, by the way. The other day, two pastors talking about the early church and the black-robed regiment here in America, and, and that. It was just wonderful. Great response to that. Just So I just want to clarify there, we do not always agree with everything that our guests say on certain doctrines of theology, but we would never bring on a false teacher. We would never bring on someone like that that's going to deceive people intentionally. Um, hopefully, we would have done our research. So thank you for the comments, and thank you for responding. And um, yeah, this is to be continued. But I was looking at the guest list of Stand Up For The Truth just since uh, the last couple of years, over 100 uh, guests. And some of the names on here, it was kind of exhausting and overwhelming just to look at all the people that we've interviewed. And it's been such a blessing, but that's what brings in new listeners because we're trying to get as many guests and views and, and uh, uh, perspectives on biblical issues in our culture. So uh, just thank you so much again. So I think I did that. I think I clarified that we can't respond to every comment and we're not going to bring another guest on to refute a previous guest because that could be an ongoing thing forever. We're not going to get into all that and that could get into a back and forth. It's really counterproductive. So today we've got the book in front of me. It's a massive volume, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise by Dr. Nathaniel T. Jeanson. And I want to bring him back on. He holds a Ph.D. in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. And as I mentioned, serves as a research biologist, author and speaker with Answers in Genesis, and formerly conducted research with the Institute for Creation 
research. Dr. Jeanson also holds a BS in molecular biology and bioinformatics. And let's bring him back on. Uh, Dr. Jeanson, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. Thanks so much for having me back, David. Thank you for your time today. And um, before we get into the podcast, I, I wanted to ask you about your previous book because that's a di- same general topic, but I love the question. First of all, the book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. And I wanted to ask the question, what if Darwin was looking at the same evidence today using modern science? Would his conclusions be the same? Because I know you wrote about that. So could you briefly just talk about your previous book? Yeah, I'd say three big pieces come to mind. One of the main focuses of the book is how modern genetics is upending the creation-evolution debate and how genetics really is the only direct scientific record of a species ancestry. So here we've been arguing about indirect (laughs) fields of science as it relates to whose species come from, what they come from, how much they can change, and and it's only been in the last few decades that we've had the critical tools to address this. So there's something Darwin was without, and in Mm -hmm. a sense, a little bit wandering in the dark. The other two things that come to mind that I've only learned having been in this professionally the last 13 years or so is, number one, he lived at an era of history in which the nature of doing science was changing. So at that time, 1859 or so, it was transitioning from science being a hobby of the independently wealthy hmm. and understanding the world to one in which it was a professional discipline, people doing it as a career. And even secular historians have commented saying he lived at a unique point in which a major revolution was possible because you had this up-and-coming crop of people doing this professionally that he explicitly appealed to. Hmm. In, in advancing his thesis, and so it, it raises the question, nowadays, where everything is professional, you've got billions of dollars, the, the National Institutes of Health budget is about $60 billion, I think the National Science Foundation, uh, $10 billion, wow. you've got so much money riding on it professionally, mm-hmm. how easy or difficult would it be to accomplish a scientific re- revolution today? So he's at a unique point in history, and the third point that I think of is uh, how much would his thinking have changed even if he were up to speed in his day? <laughs> so as an example, if you read uh, his book on the origin of species, he's arguing against, in a sense, a caricature of creation science, the idea that God created species fixed and unchanging, that, they, that, that there's no such thing as kinds. That's the main English word that you find in your English Bibles mm-hmm. for when God creates things in Genesis 1, what Noah brings on board the ark. That's probably more akin to the level of family. So lions, tigers, house cats, all the same family probably come from two on board the ark. That's something I take for granted today. Mm-hmm. Apparently Darwin didn't take for granted in his day, but he should have, yes. because that was the view uh, later in life, of Linnaeus, who was 100 years prior to Darwin. And I think one of Darwin's contemporaries asked him several years after Darwin had written his book, hey, by the way, did you know Linnaeus held to this view that's different from what you're arguing against? And he didn't. Wow. So, so it raises the question, what if he had actually been up to speed on his own contemporaries <laughs> and the people who had preceded him, the creationists he was supposedly arguing against, would his views have, have been the same? Because a lot of his arguments are simply creation, or excuse me, fixity of species is wrong, and then he swings the pendulum completely the other way. So if God didn't, if God didn't create species found changing, and everything's related, is, wow. is, is part of the logic of the book. So if, if that dichotomy changes, it's much, and it's more nuanced, how would his thinking have, have developed? Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the questions I raise in my own mind. Wow. I would love you guys to get a hold of that book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. And you said something very fascinating, Dr. Jeanson. 
Darwin was wandering in the dark, and I mean not only in his research and the technology he had available to him at that time, but obviously from a biblical worldview, he was wandering in the dark spiritually. And um, it's very important, as that was his perspective going into this, probably into his uh, book. But um, now I would love to ask uh, the response to your new book, Traced. Um, I would love to hear maybe on both sides. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of uh, encouragement and just a lot of praise just thanking you for diving into this topic and laying it out in a book that, like you did. But also, you know, from the opposition, I'm sure you've gotten some criticism. And I would love to hear your take on the response of Traced. Yeah, and I'll tee it up. We're springboarding from the book Replacing Darwin. The two are related. You don't have to read one to understand the other. Mm-hmm. The Replacing Darwin work was on the broader question of species in general, not just humans, but everything from, from bugs, butterflies, uh, beetles, to baboons. <laughs> Where do they come from? How do they arise? And this newer book is focused exclusively on the origin of humanity and the trajectory of human history as we can read it off of our DNA. The book title for my first one, Replacing Darwin, deliberately chosen in light of the history of opposition to creation science, and this is going to play a big role in a minute as it relates to what Traced does then apologetically and how the critics have responded. So I grew up under creation science, born 1980, went to Young Earth Creation seminars, Worldview Weekends growing up, heard about and, 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 and looked at what the evolutionists were saying in response to the creation scientists, watched debates and such. And one common thread from the opposition to creation science that was consistent over the decades and also made its way into federal court decisions was this concept, and I'll phrase it a couple of different ways because it, it shows up in, in, in lay form and in technical form, mm-hmm. this concept that creation science isn't science, or maybe if you've done some thing or tried to, to engage someone who's an evolutionist and, and they push back, you, you point out flaws with evolution, they push back. One of the last resorts apologetically, and again, I could say legally, if you look at the court decisions, has been it's not enough to criticize evolution. That's not my opinion. I think it's great to criticize evolution. I think there's major flaws in evolution. But what the opposition has said is, no, sorry, that's not enough. Even if you could poke a thousand holes in evolution, that's not going to convince us creation science is true. Now, why would they say that? They'd say, we're dealing with science, and creation science isn't science. It has to become a full-fledged scientific idea before we consider it as an alternative to evolution. So until that happens, they'd say, well, we're just going to keep chasing and trying to plug the holes in evolution, if there are any, they'd say, and, and, and proceed in that direction. So the book, Replacing Darwin, is titled that Not Rebutting Darwin, or something along those lines, because I had this in the back of my head, knowing that what the creation, what, excuse me, what the evolutionary community has been demanding of creation science is something better. Give us mm-hmm. something better. Or again, back to the street witnessing analogy, or you know, talking to a maybe an unsafe family member, they push back. Or let's say you're a parent, grandparent, student goes off to college, grandson, son goes off to college, comes back. I don't believe Christianity anymore. I believe in evolution now. Well, why? And, and you start engaging back and forth, this is likely a last resort, and they'll have heard it in class, because this works its way into the textbooks, too. Mm-hmm. Well, mom and dad, grandma, grandma, doesn't doesn't matter. Creation science isn't science, and so you have no part of this discussion. <laughs> wow. How do you address that? What, mm-hmm. what are they demanding? What, what, would, what would it take for creation science to constitute science? Mm-hmm. And the standard they've held up is this idea of testable predictions, this idea that uh, what defines science is the ability to propose a hypothesis that future experiments, future observations, 
future tests in the field, let's say if you're going out bi- you know, biologically, trying to test things, that by, by which you can evaluate whether that hypothesis is true or false. Mm-hmm. So they, they would caricature creation science as this idea that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. They'd say, see, that, that, that's anti-science. It doesn't raise any questions. It doesn't allow us to go and test it. You just, you just have reached your conclusion. No more debate, no more discussion. Science is all about questioning things. That's, that's, I'd say, a pretty good paraphrase of how the evolutionary community has attacked creation science. Mm. So replacing Darwin, has most of that book, there, there is some anti-evolutionary stuff in there, but most of it is trying to uh, construct a testable predictive model. I happen to use genetics as one of the main tools. Mm-hmm. But the bigger picture goal is to say it's not just that here's where evolution comes up short. Here's where creation science is exceeding evolution in its scientific predictive power. I have predictions in that book where I don't know the answer. Future experiments will have to say whether it's true or not or false. But that meets the standard then of what evolutionists have been demanding of creationists yes. for 40 years. It has profound legal ramifications, again, because even in federal court decisions, Supreme Court decisions, this is what they're citing, saying, sorry, you can't teach creation science in the classroom, it's not science, it's religion. No, I'm sorry, that's just not factually true. Creation scientists do make testable predictions. There are things I've put in print where future experiments can evaluate true or false. And just to give a practical example of this, and and piggybacking on this idea of of the view of creation in Darwin's day versus today, Mm -hmm. In Darwin's day, there's this idea that God created species. God creates a horse, God creates a cat, God creates a lion, God creates a tiger, all that. No common ancestry. I'd say a better reading of the scripture is that there's this Hebrew term. So so you won't find the term species, of course, in scripture, because this is a a modern scientific jargon. And the Bible is written thousands of years prior. You do find this term kind. The Hebrew word is mean. We transliterate that M-I-N. It's about 31 times, I think, in Scripture, many times in Genesis 1, several times in the flood narrative. And the best, to make a long story short, what seems to be the best approximation of what a kind is, what Noah brings on board the ark, is about the level of family. Not, Not two tigers, two lions, two house cats, two ocelots, two pumas, and so forth. Two of the cat family. Those two exit the ark and diversify into the 30-plus species of cats that we see today. Plus, all that, of course, we've got all these breeds of cats. Mm-hmm. That concept, the evolutionist might say, okay, I understand what you're saying, but it's still not scientific because that doesn't make predictions. Predict for me, creation scientist, <laughs> how many new species of cats are going to form this year or this decade or this century. Make some sort of prediction by which we can evaluate scientifically whether or not that's true. That's what this book does. Mm-hmm. One of the other predictions that the book makes is, there's many, but one of the ones that's most relevant then to this new book, Traced, is a prediction I put, this is 2017, when Replacing Darwin came out. I said, if the young Earth creation model is true, and humanity starts with Adam and Eve, two people, 6,000 years ago, their descendants multiply, then they go wicked, and God decides to destroy the planet, except for Noah, his son, and their wives, about 4,500 years ago, then all of humanity should go back to these eight people on board the ark, and all of civilization has arisen within the last 4,500 years because all the pre-flood civilization was wiped off the face of the earth with the global flood. Egypt, Sumer, all these civilizations post-flood, and therefore the genetic signatures of the history of civilization should be stamped all over our DNA. That's essentially the, the prediction I put in replacing Darwin. Traced, so this is a long backstory, traced is the fulfillment of that prediction. Mm. So, 
2017, five years later, here comes this book, 2022, traced, saying, remember those predictions I made? Here they're coming true. So not only does creation science meet the standard that evolutionists have put in print, put in federal court decisions for 40 years, we make testable predictions, they're actually coming true. So not only is it science, but it's doing even better science than what evolution is. And traced, even though it doesn't mention evolution much at all, is a profoundly apologetically relevant book because it meets these long-standing arguments against creation science mm-hmm. and does even better. And so now, now to your question of how the critics responded, what yeah. shocked me is the critics, who, who, who have a thousand different ways to refute what I'm saying, because I've put predictions in print, I've put the credibility of this model on the line, saying mm-hmm. here's what I predict will happen in the future. So, so go out and test it. Do an experiment. See if what I said is true or false. None of the critics have done that. They've not taken creation science up on this offer. You'd think, hey, we, great, we've got this new scientific idea, let's go chase it. No. Instead, what they're doing is basically embodying that caricature they've accused creation scientists of being. <laughs> they've in, they, instead of saying, let's ask questions, let's explore the world, uh, look for holes in established dogma, they essentially say, no. The established dogma, to paraphrase this, the established dogma is in the evolutionary textbook. You disagree with it, therefore you're wrong. I thought, you know, how is that different from the behavior you've accused creation scientists of doing? You know, Darwin said it, I believe it, that settled it. Yep, that thing. yep <laughs> exactly. I, I thought, that you, you can't make this up. This is crazy. I, and these, again, these people are not dumb. They're, no. they're smart people. Yet this is the path they've chosen to try to, to deal with the maturation of creation science. I don't see how this is going to be persuasive to anyone. But those already, you could say, religiously committed yes. to, to Darwin and evolution. But this is this is the state of affairs where we're at, and I, I'm I'm still rather shocked at, at at the path they've chosen to try to refute it. Yeah, it's not surprising when you look at it from a perspective of wisdom and godly knowledge, and the fact that they are blinded, and and they are perhaps some of the most intelligent or educated people, but. Boy, it's hard to get someone to change or admit that there's another possibility or view rather than what they've been educated to think, trained to think, believed for years. Um, we don't have enough time to jump into this now because we just have, have a minute. But I love what you say uh, just at the very beginning of your book. It, and most of us can relate that our education does not provide much of this information or research at all, even if we had biology class in high school or whatever. You say, my history education never answered many of these questions. It was as if civilizations popped into existence and then disappeared into oblivion. We're going to talk about that because a couple pages later, you say, in this book, we'll explore some of the answers I've begun to uncover, answers you won't find anywhere else, and they're just the tip of the iceberg. Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, that's a very uh, huge statement, answers that you won't find anywhere else. We'll get into that when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth, friends. The book is called Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. More to come. Keep it right here. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest today, Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. 
who answers in Genesis, author, speaker, biologist, research biologist, and he's uh, this his book is just amazing, you guys. How many pages? I think it's like hundreds of pages, at least two fifty or more. Um, traced human DNA's big surprise. Uh, so, Dr. Jensen, uh, Ken Ham said that you found the Rosetta Stone of human history. And in the book description, in one of them I read, uh, it says, What happened to the ancient Egyptians? When their civilization fell, did the Egyptian people disappear? Or do their descendants exist to this day? What about the ancient Persians, Romans, Mayans, which I know we'll get to at least the Mayans. It's such a fascinating portion of history. Uh, so let's start with what Ken Ham said, that you found the Rosetta Stone of human history. Explain that. I'm reminded of, of something that just happened recently with, with me and my uh, my family. I've got four kids, ages 9, 8, 6, and 4, homeschooling them. So we're looking at curriculum coming for the fall. And one of the history curricula that we've been looking through starts with creation, fall, flood, mm-hmm. and then, of course, jumps into the standard history that you learn in school and such, Sumer and such. But even just flipping through those chapters and seeing, okay, you've got the creation, fall, flood, Babel, and then it jumps right to Sumer, I'm like, Hold on, how did we get from Babel to, I feel like once you get to Sumer and the Sumerians, Egyptians, you're kind of extra-biblical history and there's still this big disconnect. Mm-hmm. Haven't we skipped a few centuries? Haven't we skipped a few steps? And so I had to chuckle to myself thinking, and, and this is not a criticism of the curricula, that's how it's been in every curricula, how do we get from A to B? And mm-hmm. I've realized that we haven't been able to do that because we haven't had the tools to do it. You can either have an exhaustive comprehensive family tree from written records for not just royalty, but your average person throughout history around the globe, which of course we don't have. People didn't preserve their records that way. Or you can have a comprehensive DNA-based family tree for the globe, which is what this book is now arguing we do have based on the male inherited DNA, based on the Y chromosome. So part of the reason so many history books skip, if they're, if they're Bible-based, from first 11 chapters of Genesis to Sumer, and, and then you kind of left wondering, well, what, what happened? Where, where did Sumer come from? Is there, is there a connection to one of these men in Genesis 11 or Genesis 10? How do we go from Genesis 11 to suddenly now this, this secular chronology? Hmm. This is what the book supplies, in a sense, being able to line up specific people groups back and, and, and connect them back to specific men in Genesis 10, being able to connect the dots of the various peoples of the globe. Hmm. So, again, I, I grew up taking history, just like my kids are now, where we learn that the history of, here's the biblical points, and then here's the history, essentially, of politics and cultures, not the peoples. Again, the, the, the big unanswered question when you, when you get to the beginning of history, and so many other civilizations, Indus Valley civilization, Sumerian civilization, Egyptian civilization, Yellow River civilization in China, the Olmec civilization in the Americas, who did they come from? It, it, it almost seems like, like I said in the book here, and even when you just kind of flip through the chapters in your standard history book, they pop into existence with no explanation <laughs> of who they come from, and then, of course, they disappear. Mm-hmm. With no explanation as to what happens to those peoples, to the Olmecs, to the Egyptians, after the civilization collapses. Sure, we've got some common assumptions about, well, aren't, aren't the Egyptians still with us to this day? I mean, we have, we have modern Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have modern Sumer. We, don't ha- we do have modern China. We don't have modern Olmecs. We have Mexico, but these are a bunch of unanswered questions that we haven't had the answers to, primarily because we haven't had the tools to answer them. And what this book argues is that we now do have the tools, not just 
DNA-based tools, but we have the biblical framework for those DNA tools in which these answers pop out, and in a way that the mainstream scientific community is unable to do because they stretch out the timeline for this family tree over so many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands yes. of years, that these echoes, the genetic echoes of these civilizations become invisible. Hmm. Um, you say within the last four years, roughly, um, creationists have uncovered this new Rosetta Stone of human history, and it's a DNA-based, generation-by-generation gener family tree for global humanity. And the tree traces the rises and falls of the peoples of the world's great civilization. So that's what we're talking about now, because as you say, even in our history books, major portions and perhaps centuries are kind of missing. But how how does this all play into how the Bible and the genealogies in the Bible are so amazingly accurate and documented for us? Um, where does that leave us when it comes to what happened after the biblical days when those accounts were done? The genealogies took us up to, up to a certain point, and then now we have to move on from here. This is, to me, one of the most exciting aspects of this research, not because I've done it or I've written it, but for me personally to be able to see this aha moment and, and connect the two is, is, has been thrilling. So just to back up a moment, sure. the main tool that the book uses, just to clarify, I realize I skipped over this, is a DNA-based tree. The, the particular DNA that we're looking at is the male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome. Dads have it, sons have it, dad passes it on to sons. I've passed on my Y chromosome to my three boys. Mm -hmm. My father passed on his to me. And every generation, this, is, this has been measured now, there are mistakes that occur. We live in a fallen world where post-Genesis 3, the creation has been cursed. We live in a, in, in a sinful world. It's not operating like it used to, and so mistakes happen. Mm. When the DNA is copied in sperm stem cells, passed on to sperm, the, the Y chromosome is copied imperfectly. So about out of, let's say, 10 million letters that we can analyze in the Y chromosome, DNA letters, about three change. So it, it's you know, a few needles in a haystack. But those are important needles, nonetheless. Humans and, and every other species out there are degrading genetically over time. Mm. But there's also this element that that the the accumulation of these mistakes, these three letters that change from from my dad to me, then from me to my children, and then when they grew up to their children to their boys, this acts then like a clock. You can compare my son's Y chromosome to me, you'll see three differences. If you compare one of my son's Y chromosomes to my dad's, their grandfather's, you should see on average about six differences. And so you compare mine to yours, David, my Y chromosome to yours, we count the number of differences between ours, mm. and we have a, an estimate then of when we last shared a common male ancestor. Okay. And so doing this for men around the globe allows you to reconstruct a family tree then for the globe because you have this element of who you come from and then when you last shared a common ancestor, ancestry and time. This is not what we're doing for men around the globe. And once you reconstruct this tree, the, the, the big aha moment was to see at the, at the beginning of this tree a near mirror image of the genealogy set up in Genesis 10. So just some salient facts about that mm -hmm. that I don't think I'd noticed until I actually grafted out and started comparing it to the Y chromosome. In Genesis 10, you have... Uh, Shem's descendants, Ham's descendants, Japheth's descendants. The number of men listed for each of them is differs. Ham and, and Japheth have about 27 to 30 descendants listed. Or, excuse me, uh, Ham and Shem have about 30 descendants listed. Japheth is about half that. Shem's genealogy goes down to about generation 6. 
Japheth to generation three, Ham's about generation four. Hmm. And, and they differ in, in which generation has the most number of descendants. That level of precise detail, Shem's has a longer genealogy than the other guys. Yeah. You can see that level of detail. You can count off generation by generation. Here's Shem, here's Arphaxad, here's his son, his son, here's Eber and Peleg and Joktan. You can see all that mm-hmm. at the base of this Y chromosome tree. And so then in theory, and in practice I've seen this, you can, you can get the DNA from any people group on Earth, get some of the males, get their Y chromosomes, sequence them, find where they land on the family tree, and trace them back to individual men in Genesis 10 and say, this is where your story, this is where your narrative, your history begins. Your account is anchored here in Genesis 10. This is, this is not just a white man's history book. This is everyone's history book. Everyone begins right here, and this provides the link between the two. And, of course, this also then provides the link between Sumer and Egypt and, and so many of those other civilizations where it, they don't just pop into existence. We can say, this was your Y chromosome sequence, and so therefore you came from this man, and we can put a date on that. So there's, there's profound ramifications for understanding the history of the globe, and in particular, the history of the peoples of the globe. So you brought up race, and that's a, it's been, unfortunately, a very divisive but confusing topic in recent years and now we're it's seeped into our education system uh from our government and hollywood's putting out their you know skewed versions of of race and and race wars um traced the book traced shows now i want you to explain this dr jeanson it shows that the races may have changed multiple times in human history please explain that point let me start with just the basic genetics of how this might occur to 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 diffuse i guess this this maybe some of the cloud of confusion and and some of the stereotypes that myself yes. included likely land on mm-hmm. it's straightforward genetically to go from a let's say a dark skinned person to a very light skinned person that can happen in a generation or two. In fact, I was just on the phone with a, a gentleman last night or I should say on a, a video call with a guy who's a Filipino ancestry who has I think it was his grandfather, but today he looks, he, he's freckled, blue-eyed. You'd never guess that he had, you know, a Far East Asian ancestor right. just a couple generations ago. Well, that's because the basic genetics for the various so-called races exist essentially in all of us, or to use, the, again, the example of skin tone, dark skin, light skin. There really isn't any fundamental difference between them. It's simply the amount of melanin that you have. And so you can have light-skinned people who can produce dark-skinned ancestors if they marry a, you know, a dark-skinned person, or excuse me, dark-skinned, dark-skinned descendants, they're the ancestors, in just a matter of a few generations. We're all various shades of brown, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm a light brown, Caucasian. I have friends who are you know, African-American, African descent, very dark brown. But it, it, it's the same genetics behind all of us. And, and you can see this played out very simply in the families of so-called mixed-race people, dark-skinned father, light-skinned mother, or dark-skinned mother, light-skinned father, or Asian and European, whatever the mix is, the children tend to bear features that are a, a mix of their two parents, and those children themselves, depending on who they marry and have children with, can produce a whole other set of features, and they're, they're the next generation. And so in practice, it's really easy to go from one set of physical features to another set of physical features in the generational blink of an eye. Mm. So just to put this in terms of a, a temporal context, the number of generations since Noah, approximately, is around 150. And so if you can get ethnic change in 
two, three, four generations. In theory, you could have gone through multiple cycles of physical features throughout the history of mankind since Noah and the Flood. This new Rosetta Stone, this DNA-based generation-by-generation family tree for global humanity, is the key tool then to say, well, who actually underwent this? (laughs) Are there any people who we can trace their complicated, messy history back through multiple rounds of ethnic change? And I'd say the answer is yes, starting with Europeans, uh, people like myself. My my last name, Jeanson, is of French origin. In Kentucky, we've been in the United States. My family line has been for multiple generations, but seems to go back to France. The majority of French men and of Western Europeans in general belong to a branch of this family tree that is not indigenous to Europe, but came into Europe from Central Asia in the Middle Ages. And so you go back <laughs> maybe a thousand years, my ancestors probably didn't look like me, but looked more like the Chinese than they did anyone else. Wow. There are other Europeans. You, can, you have light-skinned, blonde-eyed, blue-haired Scandinavians whose ancestors, again, l- tracing their branch on the family tree, go back to olive-skinned Arabs who themselves go back to dark-skinned Sudanese in ancient times, and some of these Sudanese would have sat on the throne of Egypt. That's the kind of crazy, messy history that emerges from this family tree. Those are just two examples. Yes. And practically, then, what that means is the so-called races have have changed multiple times in human history. You can document this in the family tree. And so when you talk about, when people talk about race, when, when racists attempt to make arguments for the superiority, so-called superiority of one race over another, how can they even speak rationally about this when, when the races themselves have changed? How can you talk about white, black, Asian, European, when there's been so much intermixing among them and change among these various peoples for example, white supremacists might say, you know, oh, we go back to the ancient Romans, what a great civilization. I'm like, mm, not so fast. Yeah, explain the that. The majority of you likely go back to Central Asia. <laughs> exactly. That's fascinating. I think there's some naivety or ignorance there. But uh, well, I'm so thankful for books like this and for people like you that can explain this. Um, in layman's terms, I, I thank, thank you for the times in the book. <laughs> After you just got done laying out something very profound and new and exciting and perhaps scientific, you say, uh, to put it in simple, in the simplest terms, dot, 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 and then you just explain it in a way that even I can understand it. Um, I think, Dr. Jeanson, we're, we're fascinated by this, and we haven't been taught all the history, even of our own continent. So I would love for you to, I, I definitely want to get to the Mayans, and I'm looking at the, the, right in the middle of the book, these beautiful, uh, color photos of the Mayan ruins, uh, a pyramid and a temple, and it's fascinating, that civilization. And I think last time we had you on, we, we did talk about, and I'll put that, that link, by the way, friends. I'll put that in today's podcast blog at standupforthetruth.com, our previous conversation with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, where he explained even his testimony in his faith. But um, we talked about Columbus and the Americas. And that's one thing I would also like you just to touch on. People won't remember what you shared in the previous podcast, but the implications for prehistory, uh, pre-Columbian Americas. So please explain that, which we did not learn in our history books. Yes, I'd say the, the stereotype view of the pre-Columbian Americas, if, if you learned it at all, because my memory of, of learning American history, so-called American history in school is basically one big blank slate for about 3,000 years or so, <laughs> 3,500 years from, from flood until the arrival of Europeans. Of, of I have no idea what happened in the Americas because mm-hmm. it just hardly anything's taught, or if, it, if it's taught, it may not have stuck. You know, that, that's, of course, a real possibility, too. But it just 
it, it I didn't walk away with any sense of of history exactly. for the Iroquois and the Navajo and the Hopis and so many other the, the, the Sioux, so many of these other tribes. They were just there mm-hmm. as European descent people moved westward, but there was no explanation as to what they were doing for thousands of years. Another common, I think, stereotype that that emerges explicitly, implicitly, implicitly, some, something people just kind of grow up with is this idea that the natives themselves were rather primitive. Stone Age and their technology is, is a common description and such. And even in mainstream science, this is changing dramatically. Some of the some of the revolutions that are occurring even now in mainstream archaeology are that, no, there were massive numbers of people here before Europeans arrived. About 90% of them died off, probably within a couple centuries of European arrival due to disease and such. Your, uh, the Americas were likely almost as populous as Europe was by the time Columbus arrived, wow. number one. Wow. Number two, they were transforming their environment. There's estimates now that maybe 11% of the Amazon is likely ancient cultivated forest, which hits at a bunch of cultural sacred cows. <laughs> Amazon's pristine, it's been yeah. untouched. Right. No, the, the natives who were living here for thousands of years transformed the Amazon and made it productive, which is, again, it, they're just, it, it, it is revolutionary, some of these things that are emerging. All that to say... What it shows is this concept of simple to complex, which mm. is the foundation of evolution. Things go from simple to complex. They're constantly evolving into more and more complex forms. We're better than our ancestors. Life is getting better. Survival of the fittest, that sort of thing. It gets turned on its head when you, when you examine in depth what was going on in the Americas before the arrival of Europeans. They were once a very complex society. Once Europeans arrived, brought diseases and such, the society collapsed. Mm. And what emerged then, what we often see and think of, half-naked person coming from the Amazon, oh, they must have always been that way. No, they used to be a very complex society. They got, they got destroyed. The civilization collapsed, and these are the survivors. One book I was reading compares it to uh, imagining you could take a time machine, someone who's never learned history, drop them back in time into a World War II concentration camp at the end of World War II, and ask them what's going on. If they didn't know any better, they'd say, "Oh, well, these people here in Germany—they've—they've they've, I guess they've always been barefoot and starving." No, they're the survivors of a collapsed civilization. In many cases, you know, sadly, the Jews mm. being slaughtered in these in these concentration camps. That's not the way they always were. They were once a thriving society until right. the Nazis came in and tried to suppress them all. Similar thing is going on in the Americas. Not that you have necessarily a Nazi ideology, but you have a once complex civilization, which again, some of these pyramids, some of these complexes that are being rediscovered point to all this, uh, the complexity in the Amazon. There, there was once a thriving, advanced civilization that then collapsed, and we've misinterpreted this for a long time, which, of course, you think about the bigger picture of creation evolution and, and cavemen, and the, you know, that's, that's a common question. What, what about the Neanderthals? It's a mistake to assume when people look simple, or the Neanderthals look simple, or primitive, these sorts of terms we toss around, to think they've always been that way. Mm-hmm. Because we have a recent example where a so-called primitive appearance is due not to long-standing primitive ways, but to an advanced civilization that collapsed. And I'd say you have in Genesis 10:11 an example of this, where you had an advanced civilization. That's what the Bible says. They're building a tower. They're building a city. Genesis 11 until God came in and essentially collapsed the civilization by confusing their languages. This would have dispersed them and reverted them briefly to a primitive state. So there's there's really interesting revolutionary discoveries happening in the Americas that have ramifications not just for understanding the history and and actually putting some color 
and narrative on this blank slate that I grew up with, but in revolutioning, revolutionizing our understanding of human history in general and how it, how, how it rises and falls, the trajectory of human history and how different it is from the common evolutionary assumptions either we're taught in school if you go to public school or just, just what you absorb in a sense subconsciously from the culture because it's been so evolutionized. So that's, that's just one of the, the many big, big things that are ongoing in, in pre-Columbian history, revolutions that are happening in pre-Columbian history, and even more that the, that the book uh, explodes in, in Chapter 12. Yes, and the end of act, Chapter 12, basically uh, one of the summaries is historical records show that massive numbers of people existed here on the eve of Columbus' arrival. We're talking with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. The book is called Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise. A lot more coming up on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up for the Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Well, Lord willing, we're going to get to the age of the earth because this book, Traced, represents one of the strongest arguments in print for the recent origin of humanity. In, in other words, when you're watching Nat Geo or Discovery Channel and they're doing something where they show this big uh, wide shot of the ocean and the, maybe there's a drone camera showing the earth or something like that, or even like my wife watches these shark programs, and you got the narrator coming on at the beginning and saying, millions and millions of years ago, and then whatever else he says. So that's not true. So, uh, Dr. Jensen, let's go over and uh, talk about the Mayans now. Um, and then I believe you, there were a couple points you wanted to clarify also about the wrong assumption that uh, mainstream science uh, puts the origin of Native Americans at over 15,000 years. So uh, just share a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mentioned some pretty explosive things that are happening even in mainstream science, mainstream archaeology about the numbers of people who were here, what they were doing, how they transformed the Amazon, transformed their environment. Mm -hmm. All that was extremely eye-opening for me. What this research does is take it to a whole new level. So we can put the Y-chromosome male-inherited DNA branches of today's Native Americans on this global family tree. And one of the shocking things that emerges is that the dominant branches on this family tree, the Native ones, arrived in the Americas from Central Asia. That's not controversial, but the timing is they arrived about 300 years, 400 years, 500 years after Christ, not before then. So why is this shocking? Because we have archaeological evidence that the Mayans, as an example, go back to at least the 400s BC, mm -hmm. if not 1000 BC, and of course before them were the Olmecs, the cradle of civilization. So this genetic research implies that there have been multiple settlings, or just to, to tick that off in, in bullet point form, the major lineages that we have today arrived in the AD era, but we know that there were people here since the BC era, and so there are still, I guess you could say, missing lineages, lost branches of the family tree that might still exist in the Americas, no one has found yet, and it implies that since you know, they're not existing at high levels at all, that whoever came over in the centuries after Christ, either replaced, wiped out, did something to the to the peoples who were here first. Their identity, their lineage, these first Americans, nobody knows yet. That's one of the research things we're pursuing going forward. Mm -hmm. But it, it makes the pre-Columbian Americas not just a dynamic place in terms of the numbers of people, not just a dynamic place in terms of what they were doing and transforming their environment, but in terms of who was coming over, when they were coming over, and how many times they came over from Asia. So there's there's a lot that's going on there. What's 
perhaps even more exciting, sort of the cherry on top to all of this is <laughs> we're going back and looking at some of the native accounts, mm-hmm. many accounts that have been dismissed by mainstream science, viewed as mythological, and finding they're basically saying the same thing. One of the best examples being for North America, the Delaware Indians have an account called the, the um, Wallam Olam, or the Red Record, that they viewed as authentic. It's this long list of about 96 or so sachems or leaders that they say they have this written record of them going back, crossing the Bering Strait, and over the past or so, uh, 1,500 years. The timing matches up very closely with this Y chromosome, this, this new discovery DNA-based tree. But someone wrote a PhD thesis in 1995 at Rutgers saying, ah, this is, a, this is a forgery. It's written by some guy, some American in the early 1800s who's trying to get fame and fortune for himself. And to this day, the Delaware Nation has disowned it because of this guy's thesis. Wow. I can't answer all of his arguments. What I can say is, how can this so-called forgery have anticipated very precise genetic discoveries that we've made in the last few years? That to me says, this is not a forgery. (laughs) This is an authentic document. These were advanced people, kept records. One of the things that's happened since the book came out just in the last few weeks that I'm very excited about, we've been, again, looking at more and more of these native accounts because I think there's history here. Yes. And, And this next example... I feel like illustrates the divide between this research and mainstream science profoundly. I've got, uh, I'm starting to look at the Incan accounts. I have on my office here, I'm looking at it right now, a, a sort of a graduate student level archaeological book on, on, on Incan history. And they had a brief section at the beginning. I, I was flipping through it just to see what they said. And they have a section, I think, titled Incan Myths and such. And they say, well, you know, the, the Incans had this, this account. They said, they claimed that there were about 13 kings they came from. And uh, just, it's just so mythological. Maybe as you get closer to the time of Spanish arrival, there's some things you can match up. In <laughs> essence, the attitude is native accounts are wrong and mythological unless we can prove from archaeological discoveries otherwise. Uh-huh. The attitude is it, it's all wrong un- unless we can prove it right which is sad and, and mm-hmm. to me, kind of insulting. Well, they have the reference to the, to the native account. It was written in Spanish by a Spaniard within a century after Spanish arrival in South America. Looked it up, found it, found an English translation. It's a remarkable account because this guy, I, I guess I'm impressed on a number of levels. First of all, this guy, I guess you could say his, his scientific prowess several centuries prior, where he said, look, I talked to 100 different Incan people gathered their accounts. I watched how they transmitted their history. He said, yes, it's oral, but it's a very strict, rigorous method of fathers training their sons. Recite the history. Get it right. He said they have this kipu system, this, this sort of uh, these strings that have these knots in them to help them keep track of numbers, because there's numbers in this account of mm-hmm. this guy was this old, and this is when he took the throne. This is how long he lived. This is how old when he, when he died. You know, helpful memory devices. Yes. He said, once I gathered the account, I read it aloud in the hearing of all these people. A, sort of a, a public time to correct this. If there's something wrong, say, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. He himself was rather dismissive of it. Again, he's, he's Catholic, uh, speaking in, in 1500 terms about here, here's how we think the Americas were settled. And, and now I'm going to tell you, he calls it the fables of these peoples. Obviously, he doesn't think they're true. <laughs> and I was flipping through it one night, just seeing. I skipped over a bunch of sections where they gave details, went to the end, and they said, yeah, and so, this guy summarized it saying, and, and so the Incan account, the tyranny of the Incas began in the A.D. 500s, and I stopped and thought, wait, what? 500s A.D., this is almost exactly the timing of the Y chromosome lineage. It says they came over from Central Asia, arrived in the Americas about the four to 500s A.D., went rapidly dispersed up and down the Americas, replaced whoever was here. This is exactly in line with it. Wow. Number two, this Incan account says it was four brothers and four sisters. Also exactly in line. If you look at the Y chromosome lineages, these are very close relatives. 
The Delaware account itself says there are about 10,000 people who crossed. So it's not a, it's not a big band. And if you're going up and down the entire Americas mm. and you break up 10,000 people, it's going to be small groups of relatives. So on multiple points, this all seems to be lining up. And it, it just it just astounded me. I thought, here we have yet another example where mainstream science says, ah, it's just mythological. It, and again, I don't I don't know why. If it's just this 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 default assumption of, well, we go from simple to complex, so people from a thousand years ago, well, they just don't know what they're talking about. No, it looks like there's tremendous history that's been neglected, yes. native history. In a sense, this research gives people back their history that they've had for centuries. It's a thousand years of ancient history that's been ignored. They talk about other people's around them. This, this is a tremendous tool going forward, trying to reconstruct the history of the Americas. I've got another book here in my office textbook basically of of South American prehistory they call it you know pre pre Spanish arrival they call South America one of the most neglected continents in terms of recovering their history yes. so so this this has profound international implications for understanding the history of South America the history of the globe and I've had about uh, five or six Native Americans who've responded to some of the videos we've put out saying hey we want to participate in this we're excited about this we want to find out our own history and we want to grow this group and that's what we're doing going forward we've, we're hoping we're going to have a video just to say you know if you're Native American come join us we're trying to gather number one as many indigenous accounts as we can because there's history here that people have ignored we're probably going to do more DNA testing there's just so many things going forward that I'm, I'm really excited about that will probably blow this open even greater. Hopefully wow. we'll find this lost lineage of the Mayan people. But, mm-hmm. but this whole blank slate now is just exploding with new life and, and new details that, that I never anticipated 20 years ago. Wow, fascinating stuff. We're uh, talking about the book Chased. If you uh, just happen to tune in and maybe catch part of this, friends, um, it's really amazing. Human DNA's big surprise with Nathaniel Jensen. Just got five minutes left, unfortunately, and there's so much else we could cover I remember when I was in Cozumel, Mexico, about uh, 10, well, actually five, six years ago, just seeing some of the ancient ruins there, and you just kind of wonder, how much are we missing from our history? But I would really love, we can't do this justice in just uh, the end of the podcast here, but the age of the earth, that's obviously been a, a debate. I really appreciate Ken Ham's voice on this and biblical authority and the literal um, creation of and and we are just really hear all the lies on TV, on all the movies, and uh, what Hollywood puts out that we've been around for millions or even billions of years. Can you talk about how Traced helps us and uh, have an argument for the more recent origin of humanity? I'll think of two things real fast related to what we've discussed, one of the Native Americans and then tying it back to what we discussed at, at, at the beginning of all sure, this sure. with replacing Darwin. With the Native Americans in particular, one of the reasons I've I've moved forward so quickly and strongly in this research is we're able to, or I should say I started this by, by first testing what we know against this family tree. So we, the mainstream scientific community would say we know there was a massive population collapse after Columbus arrived, 90% perhaps the people dying off, and it took several centuries before that, that population collapse stopped and the populations began to recover. So, for example, the Navajos today are about 200,000, 300,000 people living, either on or, or registered in part of the reservation. And if you look at their own records, they'd say about late 1800s, there were only 9,000. So they had a very small group because of wars and such that were going on there in the, in, the, in the American Southwest, again, as the U.S. was expanding westward. There's their low point, I think, and they've begun to recover. Anyway, one of the first things I did, going back a couple of years, to try to see if we do have this real 
family tree based on the Young Earth time scale was to see where is the smoking gun of this? Where is the smoking gun of the population collapsing and then recovering? Mainstream scientific community will say, yeah, we can kind of detect this population collapse in the Americas and their DNA. They don't talk about the recovery. If you have the Young Earth time scale, you say, okay, this whole family tree, DNA-based family tree based on male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome, goes back only 4,500 years. That's where this smoking gun genetically of the population collapse and recovery pops out. So I said, okay, this is working. The stuff we know, we can see it clearly in our DNA. And this is just, again, one example. You can see this on the continents around the globe for those histories and global history as a whole. Now let's take it back in time and see what, what, it, what it tells us about the history prior to that. So, so it works on a local scale, a regional mm-hmm. scale, a global scale. The history that we know pops out. Secondly, in, in, in going back to where we started, saying how have the critics responded, how have the evolutionary, how has the evolutionary community criticized creation science over the years, and they said we need we need testable predictions is what they've demanded. Mm-hmm. Now creation scientists have delivered it. So we've gone from having, to, in a sense, to play defense, where it's where it's evolution in the lead, evolution calling the shots, evolution saying here's the evidence, and creation scientists saying hold on, not so fast, what about this, here, here's a shortcoming, to now sort of leapfrogging all that, yes. not, not that I ignore it, because those are all very valid, important points to mm-hmm. make, but we can now jump into the lead and say, hey, we're making sense of the data, we're making sense of the history that we know in our DNA, we're making predictions that are coming true, the book itself, in a sense, is a fulfillment of predictions I made five years ago, hmm. now creation science are on offense, yes. and, and roles are being completely reversed, so I'm the one now demanding that we do experiments we, we, that, that evolutionists themselves make testable predictions, that they meet their own standard that they've erected for creation scientists. And, and now they're turning around and saying, no, we just need to stick to the written words, the textbooks. Darwin said it. The textbooks said it. We believe that that settles it. It's, it's an amazing change of roles. It's mm-hmm. amazing reversal of, of the turning of the tables in this creation-evolution debate. And it, it's exciting for me because it, it's not just – that we have this new apologetic era we're living in, but we're also advancing our knowledge of the globe. Again, just for me personally, not knowing anything about the pre-Columbian Americas, to be able to now be working with Native Americans to recover their histories with DNA, with their with their own accounts. There are just so many boxes that get checked, so many exciting things that are going on. It's wow. just thrilling for me to be a part of this and to see how many other people join this going forward. Thank you, Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. A phenomenal, uh, as always, uh, Traced is the book, Human DNA's Big Surprise. We really appreciate your time. We're so thankful this puts biblical authority on offense. God bless you, sir. Keep it up. Thank you very much. All right. Tomorrow we've got Harold Usash with us. We're going to be talking about critical race theory and the Marxist worldview in our education system, obviously in our government, and how we can respond to the lies and deception. That's Harold Eustache tomorrow. God bless you, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.